Well, good morning. We have officially entered into the gift-giving season of the year. Would you agree? It's happening. You know, people in every culture all over the world give and receive gifts. I mean, the idea of gift-giving is a wonderful idea. It enriches our lives. It gives us a vehicle by which we can express our love, our appreciation, and honor toward the people around us. It is such an important thing. Gift giving actually strengthens our connectedness. Now, um, I want to tell you about a gift that I, I received one time. Uh, it was my birthday, and my son Robert was uh, seven years old. Now, Robert loved Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time back then. He's more of a LeBron fan now, but I'm going to, you know... He had number 23 on his jersey. He, he had uh, the Michael Jordan action figures. And on my birthday, he came into my office. I was sitting at my desk. He puts something on my desk, and he says, happy birthday, Dad, and he runs out. So I, I got up, and I found what he put on my desk, and I noticed he had given me his prized Michael Jackson card. When you're seven years old, you know your card's going to be worth a million dollars one day. You know what I'm saying? And I've sat there kind of stunned. I'm like, wow, I can't believe you gave me. Did I say Michael Jackson? <laughs> you got me. Yeah, I thank you. <clears throat> it's Michael Jordan, right? Everybody say Michael Jordan. Thank you, that's for me, so I can stay on track. So I was thinking about this, you know, I was just amazed. Why would he give me something that meant so much to him? And so I called him yesterday. I said, hey, Rob, do you remember when you were seven years old and it was my birthday and you came into my office and you gave me a gift? Do you remember what you gave me? He says, it was the Michael Jordan card. I said, but Rob, you loved Michael Jordan so much back then. Why would you give me your card that meant so much to you? And yesterday, my son says, because dad, I love you. I don't even know where that card is today. But that gift still strengthens our connectedness. I still feel it. I'm honored that my son at seven years old would give me something so precious. Today I want to talk to you about giving. You say, oh great, I came to church on the giving sermon Sunday. I'm going to confess something to you. You, you might say, I, I hate the messages on giving. Um, I'm going to tell you who has a harder time with the messages on giving than you. It's me. I find it challenging, okay? But I gotta tell you what's in the Bible. I gotta tell you about an opportunity for you to in real time, in your real life, find a way to connect to God and experience the security that this relationship that is characterized by giving can bring to you. So, for our first verse, I want us to go to Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2. 
it says this. The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. That's you and me. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now this is a really countercultural message today. We like to be in charge, self-sufficient. It's up to us. We're the masters of our universe. We're the captain of our ship. And then we, we read here in Psalm 23, God says, I need to remind you of something, that the earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness, the world and all who dwell therein. We belong to God. Nothing that you and I have came from anybody else or anywhere else than God himself. And there are many verses in the Bible that talk about giving, giving to God, supporting his work. It's something that must be a part of our lives. It's a very practical way that you and I can connect to God. And with the giving topic, always it comes with verses about receiving. Give and it will be given to you. You give and God will bless you. And unfortunately, in our day and age, we have had some people who have taken these verses and they have created what is well known to be the prosperity gospel, which I'm gonna give you the cliff notes on that. It's like if you give in a certain way in a certain amount and at certain times, you can actually obligate God to have to bless you. And that is one of the most awful things that people are preaching because here's the truth. The very nature and the character of God is good. He is a God before you even do anything who is predisposed to, to bless you. You know why? He created you. When I get up in the morning and I have my quiet time, I often go through the same prayer and I say, God, man, I love life. Do you love life? I'm so glad to be alive today. And, and God, you formed me in my mother's womb. I belong to you. I've always belonged to you. And, and all of the great good gifts that I enjoy come from you. I'm just thankful I get to be alive again. Thank you for every beat of my heart. Thank you for every breath that I breathe, for every step I take. Thank you for every thought that I think. Thank you for everybody in my life that I love. Thank you for the food that I get to eat, my poached egg on sprouted toast with a sprinkle of Parmesan cheese every morning. That's me. That's what I do, you know. Keep the calories low and the fiber high. Uh, and so... At least I start out good in the morning. Okay, that's, that's an honest confession there. But God, thank you. I don't, have to, I don't have to work a deal to obligate you to bless me. I mean, you're thinking of taking care of me and blessing me when I don't even think I need it. I read in the scripture where it says that I need to love my enemies I need to do good to those who, who, who persecute me and say bad things about me. Why? Because you know what? God, it rains on the just and the unjust. He takes care of everybody, even the people that hate him. Did you know that? They wake up this morning, they, they are gonna be fed, and what they don't realize and acknowledge is that every good thing they have comes from the hand of a kind and generous and loving God. Don't look for a formula to 
force God to bless you because number one, he's sovereign and can't be forced. <laughs> number two, don't insult him because he's already decided when he created you, he wants to take care of you every day and in every way. So just lean into that relationship. Giving, however, is a part of the economy of God and does provoke blessing. I, I, I want to talk to you about two points. First of all, in the Old Testament, the standard for giving is something that gets floated around all the time in church, and it's called tithing. Yes, it's there. In the Old Testament, when God taught people how to honor him, because you see, God called his people and he says, I want a relationship with you. I don't want it to be ethereal, spiritual, and really not important in your life, so I'm gonna connect this to every part of your life. So here's, here's what I want you to do. When, when I bless you and I give to you, I'm, I'm asking you to return the first portion to me and I'm gonna make it a percentage. And so here's the pattern of giving. I want you to give whenever you get. Okay, is that hard to figure out? No, you give whenever you get. You give whatever you get, a portion back to me. It's the first 10%. Don't create a budget and put God at the bottom because you're missing the whole point. He's, he's first. He, he is the one who gave you all things. So you give the first 10% of anything that comes to you and you do it regularly. And I want you, even in the ordinary things of your daily bread, to know I'm involved. Ask me every day for your daily bread. I'm going to provide it. And I want, I, I want, I want you, to, you to let me know that you understand and feel the connectedness that you and I share because you belong to me. Isn't that awesome? So that's, that's what the tithe is all about in the Old Testament. It's throughout the Old Testament. One of the worst things that can happen to us is that we succeed to the point where we feel like that we are self sufficient and independent of God. We should always maintain a posture of humility and dependence on God, always. We should learn to live. And one of the ways that God has, has kind of infused into us um, an opportunity to like keep things in order and in priority and is, is this idea of whenever you get, you give a first portion back to God and newsflash, he doesn't need your stuff. But he wants your stuff that's so important to you to always be a reminder that he's there and active and involved because he loves you, because he created you, because he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And may even your daily bread remind you of the goodness and care of God. But when you become self-sufficient and independent, you're headed down a really dangerous path. In 2004, a day after Christmas, one of the deadliest recorded tsunamis in the history of mankind took place. 
a tsunami that hit Indonesia, Thailand, and Sri Lanka. 250,000 people were killed in a matter of hours. Right after the tsunami, several of us went and, and we, we saw the incredible, unbelievable devastation of a tsunami and it went miles up the coast in country after country. It was awful. Um, later, President, former presidents George Bush and Bill Clinton went to visit Phuket and view the results and the devastation of the tsunami. And when a reporter turned to Bill Clinton, this is what Bill Clinton said. I thought about all of our religious traditions and how they all teach us how we are not really in control, but we don't really believe it until something like this happens. And it reminds us all to be a little more humble and grateful for every day. Okay, these are words spoken by a man who for eight year was, years was considered the most powerful man on the planet. And he says, this thing reminds us we're not really in control. And God says, hey, listen, I got a plan for you something that will remind you that you're not in control, but I am, and I love you, and I'm on your side, and I'm here for you. And I, So every time you get, I want you to give me the first portion, and I, I want that to be a reminder of our relationship, my love, my care, and my concern for you, so you never, ever have to feel alone. Now, if you were part of the elite group of billionaires in 2022, the richest people in the world, you would have probably realized, outside of Warren Buffett, by the way, but let's not go there, that this money is hard to hold on to. For instance, Elon Musk is reported to have lost $100 billion this year. I can't even understand that. Now, before you get out your handkerchief and start crying for him, I want to remind you that he still is worth about $199 billion. Okay, nevertheless, you know, the great thing about not having uh, $300 billion is you don't ever lose $100 billion, okay? Okay, so if, if you don't have it, you can't lose it. So that's, that's, that's the silver lining. Jeff Bezos, who is the, uh, the founder of Amazon, this year lost $50 billion. But once again, put your Kleenex away. He's still worth a good $117 billion. And I'm here to say, as I watch all of the Amazon packages being delivered to, to my doorstep during this season, that we're helping him get back in business. I told Cindy the other day, I said, man, I, I see all these packages showing up. Someone's spending money around here. Yeah, I, I spent a little too, actually. But you know, the truth is, you really can't hold on to money. It's really hard. The more money you have, the more stress you have. Seriously. Now, now God bless you. Hope you get money to manage. I really do. God can help you with that, too. 
Jesus said this very interesting thing in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now, we're not shocked that money is hard to hold on to, but what I find so phenomenally interesting here is that money, when given to God, to the work of God, is a way... I mean, this is beyond quantum physics, you, you'll be able to lay up treasures in heaven. Don't understand it. You know the money that's never going to go away is the money I give away. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Wow. You know, my, my parents always taught me that tithing was something I should do. From my youngest years, allowance, you know, I have a dollar, there's 90, 90 dimes, and one dime is you should give this to the Lord. I always did it. The great thing about learning this principle of when you get, give back to God, when you're a child, is it's a beautiful thing. You just always do it. It's kind of hard to, to get in the game, uh, you know, later in life. Uh, you should but it's harder. I'm, I'm just grateful. The Lord is always in, kind of giving me the right information, and I, I, I've watched God provide. The, the other thing about this is that when you, when you give your money to God, you re- reconnect to him, you honor him, you store up treasure in heaven, all of a sudden your life is worth more than just the temporary time you spend here. The word tithe is everywhere in the Old Testament. There's no question that that is sort of the standard thing. Tithe means 10%, and it actually means the first 10%. The first person to mention tithe in the Bible is Abraham. He won a great battle against Chedorlaomer and his alliance of kings in the book of Genesis. I mean, he goes after Lot, his nephew. He beats him. It's, it's incredible. And, and he comes back, and now he has the spoils of war with him. And he goes to a guy whose name is Melchizedek. He's the priest of God. Don't have time to talk about Melchizedek being a theophany. You can research that. And he gives Melchizedek a tithe of everything God had given him. Because Abraham is just like bursting with this awe of how God was with him. And he gives him a tithe. And then we see this pattern repeated Time and time again, Proverbs chapter three, verses nine to 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So there's where the prosperity gospel guys go and they take that and help you, help you try to force God to, 
to give you what you think he should give you. But I'm here to say, drop that and just understand that God's predisposed to bless you. And he kind of says, I want you to understand how giving works. When you give, I will give to you. So it's like, it's like, you know, it's like doing rock climbing and you have the tether around you. So you're bold to reach and try because you know, if you slip and fall, you're going to be caught. God says, that's how I want you to be in your giving. I want you to know that I've got you. I've got you tied up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. You give even to the point where it's scary. I gotcha. It's an amazing thing. Tithing definitely is the Old Testament standard. One of the hardest and most strong passages in the Bible comes in Malachi, and it has to do with the fact it's, it's about money, but it's more about how God felt dishonored by the people of Israel who went through the rituals of their worship, but not from the heart. Listen to this, Malachi 1, 6 to 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am the father, where's my honor? And if I am the master, where's my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blindest sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer a, the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat the Lord's favor that he may be gracious to you. So what was going on? And people were like, okay, well, I gotta give a sacrifice, but you know what? Uh, this, this lamb over here looks, he's blind and lame, and so, you know, he's not going to bring much in the marketplace. I'm going to kind of sneak this in as my offering. And God says, do you think I don't notice that? Malachi chapter 3 kind of revs it up a little bit more. And this is, this is what the prophet says. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. That's pretty strong. But for, for you have robbed me, even the whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing that there will be no room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer over your, for your sakes so that he will not so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit nor for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And the problem that God has is, you, you say you worship me, but you actually ignore me. I'm, I'm watching what you're given. The principle of tithe is when you get, you remember it all is the Lord's. And then you give a portion back to God. And that creates this tether between you and God, a conscious daily, weekly, monthly awareness. You're not on your own. God says, I'm here. I'm gonna take care of you. The level of security and peace that comes with having this kind of a relationship with God is worth more than money. 
Here's a paraphrase of Malachi for today. You churchgoers in the 21st century, you offend me because I'm not first place in your life. You do not seek me and honor me from your hearts full of love demonstrated by obedience and devotion. But Lord, how can that be true? We're still in church. We love you in the church. We say, you say that you love me and talk is cheap. When I do the math and see how things really are, this is what I see. You're careful to not miss a house payment. Someone you know, somehow you know that friendly, cheerful, helpful banker will change his demeanor towards you if you don't pay your house payment. Your car payment, you give that because you know if you miss too many of those, they will tow away your car and leave you without transportation. The president, the governor, the city leaders are not content with good intentions. Every transaction includes a mandatory sales tax. That's at least 7%, right? And, and the federal and state government insists on having taxes taken out of your paycheck and to be paid in advance. And when it comes to honoring me, you call it tithing. You give a little here and there and support a few special projects. But at the end of the year, the cold hard facts show I'm really not first. The numbers don't lie. And when the loves of your life and the other things are more important than honoring me and supporting your place, your place of worship and the activities of redemption, I'm angered. The worst part about it is that you fool yourself to think that good intentions and partial obedience is good enough. Well, I'm calling you to make a change Honor me with your obedience and sacrifice. Put me first. Try tithing and giving as I ask you to give and watch how I can bless you and provide financially. Watch as I increase your sense of contentment and satisfaction in your soul that, that, that the material promises, they, they don't deliver, but I will. See how your perspectives on life will change. Notice how your heart will change and see how I make you more like me. Let your heart be open to me and allow Allow me to flow insight into your life like never before. Verse after verse after verse talks about this whole idea of giving to God. I want to go to the topic of giving in the New Testament. When I was a student at Baptist Bible College, my, my manager, the boss, I worked in the bookstore, and the boss went and saw, heard this speaker speak at a book conference. His name was John MacArthur. And she loved him so much, she bought all the books that he was offering, brought them back. My job as the flunky in the bookstore was to unpack the boxes, put the prices on them, and put them on the shelves. That was my job. So I did. We had all of this, this new stuff from a guy by the name of John MacArthur. I unpacked them, stamped them, put them back in. After a few days, she came back to me. She says, Ed, I want you to pull all of those books by John MacArthur off the shelves. We're going to send them back, erase the prices. We're sending them back to the publisher. I said, okay, but, but Mrs. Woodworth, why? She said, well, because there's some leaders around here and preachers who say they don't like his book on giving. He had a book called Giving God's Way because he doesn't talk about tithing. He says that's not, that's not in the New Testament. So we need to pull them all off the shelf and send them back to the publisher. Well, me, the renegade student, I'm thinking, well, before I send these all back, I'm buying that book on giving. And you know what I read in there? It, he, he says exactly like it is. You, you can search high and low in the New Testament, but it's not reiterated as a law or a principle that you have to obey. Alistair Begg says that the New Testament is silent 
kind of an eloquent silence. It doesn't push this on us as a, a, a standard pattern that we have to do like the Old Testament. Neither does it set it aside. His conclusion is, while it should not be giving out of obligation, our giving to God should be at least as much as the Old Testament and more. I mean, you look at the giving in the New Testament, it's incredible. These people gave more than their tithe. They gave out of poverty. They gave because their hearts would explode with gratitude that they felt if they weren't given a chance to express their love and devotion to God. They were eager to give. The disciples left their families. They left their good livelihoods to follow Jesus. There was a little boy who offered his entire lunch in the midst of a multitude, and Jesus took the five loaves and two fishes, and he fed thousands. And then when it was all said and done, Jesus picked up baskets of food and gave the boy more than he ever gave away. I mean, Zacchaeus, this guy loved money. He was a tax collector. But when he met Jesus, all of a sudden, his whole life and perspective changed. He decided to go back and repay everyone he had cheated with interest. And then he gave half of what he had to the poor because money no longer controlled him. Money was going to be used to accomplish the plan of God. There was the woman who took her alabaster box of expensive perfume worth a year's wages and broke that box and anointed Jesus. And she was criticized. What a waste, but Jesus says, oh, don't say that. She's anointing me for my burial. This testimony will be spoken from now on. That someone could love so much. Why did she do that? She did it because she loved it wasn't about keeping a rule. It wasn't about a, a legal obligation. The Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8, it was out of their deep poverty and their abundance of joy in the midst of affliction that they begged Paul to receive their offering. Because Paul said, no, y'all are too poor you're under such stress, I don't want to receive anything from you. And they said, oh, no, 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 Paul, don't pass us by. Please take our offering. This is extravagant giving that comes in the New Testament. Now, I can't promise you that if you tithe and develop a generous heart, you'll be rich. But I can promise you that if you don't, you'll be spiritually poor. John Ortberg, who is one of my favorite speakers, says this. He says, you know, one of Jesus' favorite illustrations are birds. birds. Not a lot of birds now, is there? It's kind of winter. However, today, on my way to church, the brightest red cardinal flew across the road in front of me. You know, this is what Jesus had to say about the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than them? In Luke 12, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet one of them is, forgo not yet, not one of them is forgotten by God? So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. 
Jesus would say, look at the birds. You know what? They are not fed because of the random act of an unfeeling, unthinking, unblinking mechanical universe. Every time a bird has something to eat, it is the gift of God who cares and is generous and is faithful and gives. And this God who takes care of the birds promises he will take care of you. And like the law of gravity is woven into the universe, the law of giving is also woven into the universe. He quotes Eugene Peterson who says this. uh, He writes about a little swallow chick and and the, the, the adult swallow and they're up in a tree and this adult swallow takes the chick and starts shoving them out of the nest and onto the limb outside, and he pushes them and pushes them till they get to the end of the branch, and then they fall off, and in a panic, they, they get just a few yards above the water below, and they start flapping their wings instinctively because the parent knew what that little bird didn't know, that if they would flap their wings, they actually have the power to fly. He tells about this one one little chick swallow that is tenacious was not going to turn loose of the branch. And even as the parent pushes it to the end of the branch, that little chick grabs a hold of the branch and refuses to let go. And so, without sentiment, the parent chick begins to peck at the talons of that little chick until the pain of holding on is greater than the fear of letting go. And that chick finally lets go and uh, and, and overcomes its insecurities only to discover as it falls and panics, it can fly. You see, because the parent knows this is, this is the way it works. This is how you were made. You, you can walk. You can grip. But you were made to fly. And it's not until you and I take the risks of giving that we fly. It's not until we give it all and follow completely that we experience the presence of God and his goodness. Aaron Aaron McManus, I don't know if you know about him, he's a great preacher and I love to listen to him and he talks about when he accepted Christ, he discovered, oh, turns out I got to go to church every week now. Wow, this is not like an add-on thing, is it? I got, I got to go to church every week. And then I learned about this thing called tithing, and I thought, oh, you're kidding me. I'm going to have to start giving 10% of what I earn to God? He said, at that time, I made $6,000 a year. That meant $50 a month. And when you only make $500 a month, $50 is a big deal. And I went into a panic. Am I going to do this or not? He said, I decided to do it. And it was painful and difficult and scary and I'm so thankful I felt that pain because that's where I felt the presence of God and I felt the goodness of God. So I come to you today and I say, uh, 
you were made to give. You know, one of the scariest moments of anybody's life is when you realize I am sinful. I am headed toward toward an eternity that's frightening. And I have the option to give my life to this man, Jesus, who was God and went to the cross and rose again. And I don't understand it all. And it's scary for me to surrender my life to him. And then you do it. And you feel a peace and a forgiveness and a joy you never knew was possible. And you begin to real think that your life, your, real, your life is really not about getting everything. It's about giving your life away. I mean, your life is to be given to your wife, your children, your friends, the people around you. And when, when you give, you live. You know what I want for everybody in this room? I want us to all experience the goodness of God that comes through our giving and trusting and complete dedication. I want us to all be participants in the work of God. I want us to see the miracles, the provision, and the goodness of God. I want it to be a daily thing. I want it to be whenever I get, I give a portion back. And it's, I, you know, I get stuff. Maybe you get paid once a week, every two weeks, or once a month, or I, it doesn't matter. And, and the fact that it's regular and always a part of your life means that you're always in the presence of God, declaring your dependence. And it turns out to be the, a beautiful way to live. And in every one of those moments, you are reminded you're not alone. Your good God feeds the birds and takes care of you. So you just relax and trust and watch what God can do. Will you bow your heads, please? You know, there's, there's one more thing I got to tell you. I kind of forgot. You, you, look at the screen. You know, part of my job as the pastor is we have this wonderful building, 90,000 square feet under roof. Can you put up the giving graphic, please? And 90,000 square feet under, under roof. Uh, the building's 44 years old. I love this place. So much has been accomplished in this place. And, um, but there's stuff that goes on with the 44-year-old building. And I got to tell you about it. I don't have anywhere else to go. Okay. In short, we need to raise $465,000. Now, I don't know if that number scares you. It scares me. But we need to spend $150,000 to complete the remodel in the chapel that was begun. The auditorium overhead lights, and I hate to tell you this because you're going to notice it every week now. If you look up, there's always at least six, seven, eight, nine lights. There's more than 80-something fixtures up there. And we've tried and tried and tried and tried, and we rent this articulating lift, and I'm so glad I don't have to do this job. We have to get up there and change those lights. Within a week, we've got three or four that are out again. We've consulted with the experts. They say, here, here's the deal. Those lights are over 30 years old. Your system is analog. You can't have digital. All of your, it, what you need is complete 
remake of the lights, LED, digital, dimmable, uh, everything you need. Anything times 85 is a lot of money. $185,000 for that. Remodel the chapel, 150. If you're in the balcony, please be careful. The, the, the carpet is old and um, we, we need to replace that. We want to replace that, but that's going to cost $130,000. I would imagine that some of you live in a house and you've, you've remodeled within the last 44 years. What do you think? And you know how expensive it is to re-carpet the living room, right? If you multiply that times how many square feet we have here, it's a lot of money. And I don't know what else to do, but just tell you, this is what we need. Would you be willing to give? So right now, I'm going to ask you to all stand up and join my team.